When we practice the metta meditation, we begin by sending loving wishes to ourselves and slowly begin to extend that outward. We send loving wishes to a benefactor, somebody who has been of great benefit to us or has helped us in some important way. Tonight I'd like to speak about somebody who has been a great benefactor to us all and who's really responsible for us all being here together on this retreat. I'd like to speak of the life of the Buddha and the meaning and significance of his life in our own lives and in these times. We can understand the Buddha's life on different levels. We can understand it on a historical level. He was a particular historical individual. He was a human being, not a god. He was born, it's said, around 560, 563 BC. There are records of or accounts of his childhood, his growing up, his young adulthood, marriage. Now he was born a prince of the warrior caste. Accounts of his leaving home, living till the age of 80, dying. So all the struggles and events of a normal human life. That's one level. Another level we can understand the Buddha is that of being a basic archetype of humanity. That is the archetype of the awakened human mind, the archetype of enlightenment. On this archetypal level, the Buddha's life is not simply the strivings and realization of a particular historical individual, but we see his life as the unfolding of a great mythological journey. Mythological here does not mean unreal. It doesn't mean illusory. The power of the myth, the power of myth in general, is that it relates individual experiences to universal principles. And that's why myth has had such a power for people throughout time. So on this level, we begin to see that the Buddha's life reveals the universal aspirations within us all. So we begin to connect our own life with his. It helps us view our own life in a larger and fuller and more complete context. In understanding the mythological journey of awakening of the Buddha, we begin to see deeper meaning in our own life choices. We really connect the Buddha's journey with our own. Now, if we look at the lives of any great explorer in any field, people exploring the boundaries of what is known, it's easy to feel the excitement, the interest, the mystery, the enthusiasm of that discovery. But how often in contemplating the lives of great explorers, do we really contemplate the courage that it takes to go through the tedium, the boredom, the loneliness, the frustrations, the defeats, because all of those are part of that exploration as well. In exactly the same way, the innumerable ups and downs of our practice, 
the inevitable ups and downs, are part of the exploration of our lives, are part of the exploration of this spiritual journey. Because we're pushing at the boundaries of what we know and what we understand and what we can accept. We're pushing at the boundaries of our capacity for love and for compassion. There are inevitably difficulties to be faced. This is part of the journey, part of the journey of awakening. This great mythological journey, archetypal journey, was described beautifully in a book by Joseph Campbell called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in that book, he uses the Buddha's life as the example of this journey of awakening. And he interweaves the historical personal elements of the Buddha's life with the universal principles that they embody. So it helps us understand our own particular experiences with the universal principles that our own experiences embody. What's the first stage of this journey? Joseph Campbell called it the call to awakening, the call to destiny. It happens when something occurs in our lives that makes us question how we're living, what our lives are about. When we realize that the conventions of a society, the conventional understandings of our culture, no longer satisfy us. We feel or we see or we're awakened in some way to the limitations of our usual habitual way of viewing things. Almost all of the conventional understanding of our world and of our lives is contained in one verb. And that's the verb to have. We have possessions. We have relationships. We have professions. We have a mind. We have a body. And all of this is based on the great illusion of having a self. Eric Fromm, who is famous, I think, Swiss psychologist, he summed, he summed all this up by saying, I am what I have. <laughs> and really, when we look at our lives, that's how we define ourselves, of what we have, even of having a body, having a mind. That's the relationship the context of understanding our lives. But there's a fundamental problem with this. Given the great truth of change, the great truth of impermanence, there's nothing that we have that we won't lose. That's inevitable. And so as long as we're living our lives based on this understanding, this context of having, we inevitably are living with a feeling of unease, of discomfort, of incompleteness. In the early life of the Bodhisattva, which is how the Buddha was called before his enlightenment, before his awakening, he lived in a great world of having. He was born in a prince in different palaces in a loving family, and he was schooled in all the arts and sciences of his time. He had great education. He had everything that the world values. For Siddhartha, the call to destiny, the call to awakening, came when he began to question deeply these values. And it's interesting for us because we're living in analogous situation to Prince Siddhartha. 
as I believe Steve mentioned last night, we're living in extremely privileged circumstances. We have a lot. We have everything. And just like Prince Siddhartha, there's a call to awakening and a call to destiny when we begin to question. We call into question the primacy of these values. For Siddhartha, it came when he faced directly what are called the four heavenly messengers. Sickness, old age, disease, and death. It's so easy to think of these aspects of experience, sickness, old age, disease and death, to think of this, to think of these things as mistakes of our lives. You know, if it happens, it's a mistake, and I did something wrong. The call to destiny, the call to awakening, happens when we realize these things are not mistakes. This, this is the truth of taking birth. This is the truth of our lives. These things happen. These are a part of life. And so it said the Buddha, the Bodhisattva questioned, questioned the values of his life. Why should I, being subject to decay and death, keep seeking that which is subject to decay and death? Why do I devote my life to seeking that which is itself impermanent and itself changeable and will inevitably die? He started to confront the very basic questions. What is the nature of birth and of death? What is beyond birth and death? Now, these are the same questions that face us all. It's not that they were just important in the Buddhist time, and somehow now we have different questions. What brand of yogurt should I buy? <laughs> it's the same, the same heavenly messengers, the same ultimate questions. What are we doing with our lives? What choices are, are we making? What is really of value? Given the truth, given the Dharma the reality of how things are. What will serve us the most at the time of our death? Will it be the things we have? Is that what's going to be of service at the time of death? Or will it be our capacity for acceptance, our capacity for not holding on, for not clinging? Many people ask themselves these questions at one time or another in their lives. But I think most commonly the questions come maybe a faint call to awakening. And then we get re-immersed in the busyness and the activities of our lives and the questions get subsumed by our busyness. Each one of us, though, has really had a major call to destiny, a major call to awakening, which brings us together here. People who want a vacation don't come to a meditation <laughs> retreat. <laughs> I mean, something strong, something very strong brings us here and gives us the energy to go through this. You know, in, out, in, out, lifting, moving, it's not easy, and it's not always or even usually fun. 
<clears throat> so there's some, there's some, something has happened, you know, in all of our lives. When I look back on you know, my own life, I really see some very distinct events or times that awakened, you know, this call to destiny, this call to the Dharma. The first happened when I was quite young, I was just 12 years old, and my father died quite suddenly. And he, had, he had leukemia, and it was a question basically of a couple of months. You know, he was diagnosed in September, and he died in November. And it took me, it took me a long time, so I was 12 years old, it took me a long time to really both open to and then feel and process all the emotions around that. But what was very striking, even at age 12, was this incredible event of death. Somebody that's so part of your life is there, and then they're not there. It was definitely a wake-up call. You know, oh, this is what happens. This is part of things. So that was, that was a very, very big event in terms of becoming aware of some very basic facts of life. Now, when I was in college, I was a freshman. I kind of had come to a place, as I think is not uncommon, you know, as a freshman grappling with meaning. Just the meaning of life became a consuming question for me. What did it all mean? And I remember I was so consumed with this that, again, this was my freshman year of college, I gave myself a week <laughs> to decide, does God really exist? <laughs> and I felt like I needed to come to a decision. <laughs> because the direction of my life depended on it. And as only you know, one can be at that very vibrant age, it had tremendous, that question had tremendous force and potency and power. Unfortunately, I can't remember what I decided. <laughs> but I remember the question <laughs> was really important. And again, it was part of this, just the searching, the looking, something. What, where is the meaning? And then a few years later in the Peace Corps, you know, I was in Thailand. And again, 21, 22 years old. You know, I'm caught up in the rush of thoughts and emotions and insecurities and just coming into a young adulthood. And the question went from, from that bigger question of the big meaning of life, it really started to narrow down. Who am I? And I remember so clearly looking in the mirror and just wanting to get behind the appearance. Who's in there? And then I was going to some meditation or Dharma discussion groups in Bangkok at one of the temples. And one of the monks you know, suggested that I try meditating. And it was all new and you know, quite kind of exciting. And I sat down and just the first time was just for a few minutes. But it was amazing to me. Because even in those first few minutes, to see that there was a way to look inward as well as look outward. And my whole life had been looking outward in books, in other people, in activities, as a way of understanding myself. And all of a sudden, just sitting in place, not that any great enlightenment happened, 
But just sitting in place and turning the attention inward and really seeing, understanding, there is a way to understand myself by looking at my own mind. So that was, that was really revelatory. So all of these things, you know, for me, really became those calls to awakening. Each one of us has gone through things like this. It's helpful to reflect at times on what our own particular calls to destiny were because it reconnects us with the basic source of our inspiration, of our energy, of why we're doing this. These were powerful turning points in our lives, the turning points that brought us here. This is the first stage of this great mythological journey towards Buddhahood, towards enlightenment, the call to awakening. The second stage, as Joseph Campbell describes it, is called the Great Renunciation. In order for us to awaken to the hidden possibilities of life, we need to be able to renounce our habitual, conventional ways of understanding things. Now, we've all gotten comfortable in a certain way of understanding. Understanding ourselves, other people, the world. It's necessary to renounce that comfort if we want to go beyond our current level of understanding. Things are not always what they seem to be. In fact, they're probably very rarely what they seem to be. If we stay satisfied with our superficial perceptions of things, with the usual perceptions, with the comfortable perceptions, mostly we stay confined in areas of delusion and ignorance. There are many examples of this in many arenas, but a very striking and obvious one is in the realm of science. I'll just give you an example of something I came across a little while ago. There was an article on astronomy, and it said that for a long time, uh, the astronomers had thought that, you know, in the area around the Big Dipper, my favorite constellation, (laughs) in the area around the Big Dipper, there wasn't a lot of other, you know, stars or galaxies. It It was mostly empty space. And then I guess it was when the Hubble telescope went up, all of a sudden they got more high-powered capacity to see. And then they discovered that around the Big Dipper, there were millions of new galaxies and hundreds of millions, million stars. This is 10 years before, oh, not too much is there. <laughs> millions of galaxies. Hundreds of millions of stars. To to just illustrate it from the other side, the microscopic. I read this, and I mean, I'm not a scientist, but sometimes these these you know little things just jump out at me. This is what I read about. This is about the quantum, the quantum world, whatever that is. <laughs> Okay, it said that in very round terms, the quantum world operates on a scale as much smaller than a sugar cube as a sugar cube is to the entire observable universe. (laughs) So, when I read that... (laughs) 
So there's a world going on in that proportion. I mean, it's, it's unthinkable. So it's a pretty safe assumption that there's some stuff that we're missing. <laughs> And it's the same way in this discovery, this journey into our own minds and body, because in some way that journey is as vast as the journey in time and space. And as we really go into the nature and the depths of consciousness and everything that's revealed through the powers of mind. So we need to have the humility that actually fuels this stage, the great renunciation. Okay, can I give up my attachments to views and opinions about how things are so that we stay in a place that's open and and really begins to explore arenas that have been closed to us? On one level, This great renunciation is the renunciation of having as being the basic paradigm of our lives. But we really come to see that having is not the source of happiness. That that's not where happiness is to be found. We begin to see for ourselves that wholesome qualities of mind, skillful qualities of mind, are the place where we can experience happiness in our lives. Much more so and much more completely than anything we might have. And so as we go out into our lives, into the world, there's one very fundamental practice question that we need to bring with us in all of the various things we do and activities that we do and relationships that we have the one fundamental question we need to ask is what qualities of mind are being cultivated in this activity? Are we cultivating more greed, more fear, more hatred, more delusion? We need to be able to renounce the great renunciation is what's being cultivated more generosity, more kindness, more love. So it's very simple, it's a very basic question. But we need to remember to look, we need to remember to ask ourselves as we navigate through our lives. In meditation, we practice the great renunciation by letting go, a willingness to let go of the indulgence of our discursive thought process. Now, at one point in my practice, I was, I was doing a lot of intensive practice, but my mind was just on this thinking jag. You know, thinking, 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 thinking. So at a certain point, I just, you know, it's kind of the soft acceptance, openness, didn't work. <laughs> so, you know, okay, the sort of wisdom. And I remember, I remember saying to myself, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to get enlightened? <laughs> you know, sometimes we just have to take that and renounce the habit that's not serving us, that's not skillful. I don't have to indulge this pattern. Well, the great renunciation of the habit of afflictive emotions, you know, indulging ourselves through not paying attention, through not being mindful of those emotions that keep causing us suffering. Just coming back again and again to the experience of the moment. That's part of this great renunciation. For the Bodhisattva, the great renunciation involved leaving 
the busyness of his, wor- of his world. He left his family, he left the palace, he left his role as prince. The call to destiny, the call to awakening was so strong and the renunciation was so strong. In search of enlightenment, he went off and at first, you know, he practiced all the jhanas, the states of absorption, of samadhi, reaching the highest levels. He didn't feel complete. Then he spent six years practicing the austerities, and it's quite interesting in the suttas to read the level of austerity that he practiced. And, and there's some powerful images, you know, the Buddha images. There's one, one famous one, which is called uh, the Emaciated Buddha. And it's, it's a very powerful image of uh, a, Buddha, a Bodhisattva, really, sitting in that position. But all you see is kind of the gauntness in the ribcage from, from those years of deprivation and starvation. Six years of that determination until he saw that that too was not the way. So finally he took some nourishment and it prepared him for the third stage of this great journey. There's the call to destiny, the call to awakening. There's the great renunciation, the willingness to give up our habitual ways of seeing things in order to experience a deeper way. The third stage is called the Great Struggle. I want to read just a little bit from this book, Hero with a Thousand Faces, because Joseph Campbell describes in this very mythopoetic language the nature of the Great Struggle of the Bodhisattva. As you said, the imagery is very extravagant and powerful. So as you listen, see, see, actually if you can, can let the image, imagery uh, wash through your minds, because it's, it's very strong. Okay, so the Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree, and straight away was approached by Kamamara, the god of desire and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended twelve leagues before him, twelve to the right, twelve to the left, and in the rear, as far as to the confines of the world. The protecting deities of the universe took flight But the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And the god then assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder, and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness, Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gotama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed the forces of desire, pining, and lust, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged his right to be sitting there, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. Every time we sit, 
we are actually sitting under the Bodhi tree. And we're assailed by the same forces. You know, this is the mythopoetic language of the same forces in our own minds. We're assailed by the forces of desire and fear and anger and doubt and restlessness. And every time we sit, we're in the same great struggle of this journey as the Bodhisattva was. Our struggles have a much greater meaning than simply the immediate experience of them. When we see it in this way, we understand that the struggles that we have with our minds, with our bodies, are part of a much greater unfolding journey that we're all on. Thomas Merton expressed this understanding really well. He said, prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. Those are the times where we are learning. Those are the times where we're opening. The great struggle is a part of this long, long journey, and it's what the Bodhisattva went through and what each one of us goes through. So this is, reveals the importance of courageous effort. We need that quality of courage in order to go through this, in order to face all the demons of our mind in whatever forms they take. We've spoken already of this Pali word virya, usually translated as effort. So from one side, virya is this great heroic effort of the bodhisattva. I want to read a statement he made, you know, illustrating the power of his resolve and determination. He said, if the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. That's a warrior mode. (laughs) And if we're in the right place, that can be tremendously inspiring. Yes, I can do this. Many beings have done this before. I can walk this path. I can awaken. But for others, that heroic cast may seem either a little daunting or feel that it would lead us to a lot of self-judgment or ambitious striving, that it's not quite in balance. So we need to understand the other side of virya as well. And that is that quality of the courageous heart. Not not the sense of the striving effort, but that courageous heart which is willing to be with and to open to whatever presents itself. It's the heart that does not retreat from difficulties. This is the kind of courage that lets us be at the edges or the boundaries, the limitations of our practice. We get to a place that's uncomfortable in some way. Can we settle back with that courage and open to it and be with it? It opens up to new possibilities beyond our habits. Just as a few simple ways, you know, to practice staying up a little later at night or a lot later, 
sometimes coming in. Now, one of our teachers used to have what he called vow hours, where you took the vow not to move. It was difficult, you know, especially in the beginning. It was made more difficult by the fact we would take the vow and he would start the sitting with some chants and then go off into his room right off the hall and be reading his newspaper and <laughs> chomping on an apple. <laughs> and we're sitting there, you know, with the nails going through the knees. But something, just, okay, let me do this. Maybe an hour is too much at this point. But to begin to play with the limits, let me not move for 10 minutes. Really sit perfectly still, or 15 minutes, or half, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It's the quality of that courage. One point, Deepama, you know, who's this amazing woman, teacher of ours from Calcutta, deeply enlightened and unbelievable powers of mind, and tremendously loving. She was just this amazing, amazing being. It was not long before she died. I was in Bodh Gaya and we were walking together and she basically kind of came up to my waist. She was this tiny woman. And she turned to me and she said, I think you ought to sit for two days. She didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant that I should sit down and get up two days later. (laughs) Well, she said this, I just started laughing, like you. And she turned to me and she said, don't be lazy. (laughs) I don't think it was a question of only laziness. She had the capacity, she at times sat for four days at a time. Her samadhi was so incredible. She would enter into these samadhi states, sit down, not get up for four days. I mean, there are just things beyond our understanding of what's possible. Obviously, we can't jump to some place that is really way beyond our capacity, but we can understand, we can move in that direction. We can play at the edge, press on the boundaries a bit. So it's the call to awakening, the call to destiny, what awakens us to the possibility. There's the great renunciation, the willingness to give up for periods of time or in some fundamental ways, our usual conventional way of understanding things, knowing there's much more to understand. The great renunciation. There's the great struggle where we where we come face to face with the difficult energies in our minds, where we're sitting under that Bodhi tree. And Mara appears to us. And the last stage of this journey is called the Great Awakening. And for the Bodhisattva, this, of course, happened on the night of his enlightenment. And it's said that it, it unfolded through the three watches of the night. In the first watch of the night, he said that he looked back and he saw the endless succession of his past lives, his innumerable past lives, beings born, living out, their life, dying, being reborn, over and over and over again, seeing the insubstantial, endless nature of that process. Well, we may not be able to look back into all our past lives, but we can look back into this life. What has happened to all our past experiences? It's the same thing. All of these things which were so important and felt so substantial at the time, where are they now? We can look and see and and develop this wisdom and understanding. And it helps us illuminate what it is that we're holding on to and why because it will just be 
part of this endless process of change itself. For the second watch of the night, the Buddha saw into the law of karma and the destiny of beings. He wasn't looking back at his own past lives. He was surveying the world and seeing beings being born and dying according to their actions. And as you know, the law of karma is that basic law of cause and effect, that actions have results depending on the motivation. And it was this that aroused the great compassion in him, because he saw, as we can see, beings wanting happiness, seeking happiness, longing for happiness, and doing the very actions that cause suffering, out of ignorance, out of not understanding, out of not being mindful. How often in our own lives do we do things wishing happiness from them, but actually them being the cause of our suffering? There's a, there's a Tibetan prayer that says, may you have happiness and the causes of happiness. May you be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. We need to come to the same understanding that the Buddha had in the second watch of the night in terms of understanding the law of karma, that happiness arises out of causes, suffering arises out of causes. And we are the only ones responsible. And it's all summed up in one very powerful teaching, which is the practice of a lifetime, for a lifetime. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. It's our motivation that determines the result, the consequences of our action. If we want happiness in our lives, we need to look at our motivation. If we want to avoid suffering in our lives, we need to look at our motivation in everything, behind our speech, behind our actions. So this is a fantastic practice. And it's one that we carry into our lives. sometimes not easy to sort out our motivations. Now, sometimes they're clear, sometimes they're not. They can be very confused, they can be mixed, there can be a conflict. I'll just I'll share one motivation story with you. Some time ago, I was on retreat and I read this one discourse of the Buddha, and I thought there was a story in it, and I thought it would make a great story for my colleague Sharon Salzberg's book that she's writing on faith. So that was my first thought. Oh, this will make a great story for her. My second thought was, no, I want it for myself. You know, because for Dharma teachers, a good story is like gold. You know, so we really... No, I'm going to keep this for myself. And then my third thought was, no, I'll give her that story, and that way more stories will come back to me. <laughs> and forethought was no that's just being selfish just give her the story but maybe I'll tell her what I've been through this whole process <laughs> you know and think well then she'll feel a little indebted <laughs> and I was just because I was on retreat I was just watching I was watching my mind go through this you know and finally I just it's sort of been Bemusement. I, I just wondered, well, where in the midst of all of these conflicting motivation, motivations is there really a moment of genuine generosity and kindness? And it was interesting. I saw that there was one. And it was right in the first moment. And that even though I had all of these other thoughts and motives, if I could just be mindful and let them come and go, I could go back to that very first thought come back to that place 
of real generosity. So at the end of my retreat, I did, and I showed her the story, and she didn't even want it. (laughs) So it's not so simple always to sort out our motivations. But if we're mindful, if we're attentive, we can see. We know. If we're attentive. And then we can choose to act on the skillful ones and to let the unskillful ones go. Okay, in the third watch of the night, the Buddha, Bodhisattva, awakened to the Four Noble Truths, everything Steve spoke about last night. How the mind creates suffering through attachment and the possibility of letting go of that suffering. And it said that at daybreak, just as the morning star appeared, the Buddha opened to the deathless. His mind opened to the deathless. He became the Buddha. And his first, his first verse, which he, according to the tradition, he recited uh, to himself after his enlightenment. So this is the first, you know, just, okay, you have to endless lifetimes of striving, attaining full enlightenment, full awakening. I traveled through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house, this house of self. Sorrowful is birth again and again. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters, the defilements, have been broken. Your ridgepole, ignorance, has been shattered. My mind has attained to unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. So just for a moment, can we ourselves relax back into the mind of no clinging, the mind of no craving? Just for a moment, taste the freedom of the mind released. We do it moment by moment. Buddha was enlightened at 35, And he spent the next 45 years wandering northern India, teaching all those who wished to practice. We all start with our individual calls to awakening. This is what brings us to the journey. As our practice unfolds through different stages, the great renunciation and the great struggle, at a certain point we realize that our practice is not just for ourselves. That our practice can be for the benefit of all. And as we've said, this is the birth. This is the arising of the mind of bodhicitta. How can we practice it? How can we practice this aspiration? We can practice it from two sides, and the different traditions in Buddhism emphasize different sides, and I think it's helpful to understand both. In the Theravada teachings, the understanding is that by purifying ourselves, we will be able to be of benefit to others. It's like two people stuck in the the mud or sinking in quicksand. One person needs to get a footing on the solid ground and then can help the other person to safety. That when we truly take care of ourselves and purify our own hearts and minds, it will inevitably help others. And we hear this message every time we get on an airplane. 
This is the message we hear. If there's a sudden loss of cabin pressure, oxygen masks will descend. Please put on your own mask first and then assist the others around you. There's a wisdom in that. No, there is. When you, because if we don't put on the own mask first, then as we begin to be deprived of oxygen, all we're spreading is confusion and panic. If we put on our own mask, then we actually are able to help everyone around us. So this is a very important principle. We need to come to some place of understanding, to some place of clarity and peace, and then we are able to benefit others. From the other side of practicing bodhicitta was expressed very clearly and powerfully by Shantideva in the Mahayana tradition. And of course, the Dalai Lama is a beautiful embodiment of this. I want to read the basic, the basic teaching of Shantideva is that the practice of bodhicitta is putting others before oneself, seeing others as being more important than oneself. This is something called the seven-branch prayer. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself, raining down a flood of food and drink. May I dispel the ills of thirst and famine, and in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient being, poor and destitute, may I become a plentiful treasure and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings. That's a powerful aspiration. To dedicate one's life in such a complete way. We read that, hear that, and on the one hand it might be tremendously inspiring, on the other hand it might be a bit overwhelming, a bit daunting. Could we ever do this? The Dalai Lama expressed it so well, and I think I may have mentioned this to you, where he himself said, I cannot really begin to practice bodhicitta, but deep in my heart I know it's a good idea. You know, so again, if we're inspired by this possibility, it's not that all of a sudden we become these great saints. But we hold it as an aspiration for a way of living, for a way of relating. Rather than seeing these two approaches in opposition, I find that in the spirit of one dharma, they actually are two sides of one practice. And they each help avoid the dangers of the others. If we overemphasize our own purification at the expense of others, okay, I'm going to get enlightened and not really be caring of others, our path becomes very narrow, you know, and can be self-absorbed. It's on the one side. On the other side, if we're always putting others before us, 
it's easy to slip into a kind of neurotic codependence. We're always looking to please others at the expense of our own welfare. So somehow we need to hold both sides of this great practice of bodhicitta. So we do the work of purifying ourselves. We put on our own oxygen mask with the aspiration that it be for the benefit of all. So that even as we're walking on the path, it's wide, it's all embracing. And when we are putting others before ourselves and practicing bodhicitta in that way, we understand that in doing that, we are indeed purifying our own minds. And so the two just are elements of one great practice. The Bodhisattva's courageous effort through all of those lifetimes was really fueled by this aspiration of bodhicitta. That's what gave the energy for undertaking this great practice of awakening, of liberation. He died, the Buddha died at the age of 80. It said that he lay down between two trees that in honor of the Buddha's passing, were flowering out of season. And the last words of the Buddha, which I find very powerful knowing that they are the last words. So just imagine a lifetime having attained to the highest, a lifetime of teaching, and this is, these are the words that he leaves us with. It's with the light of perfect wisdom, dispel the clouds of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with heedfulness. The light of perfect wisdom, dispel the clouds of ignorance. Subject to decay, are all conditioned things. Practice with heedfulness. This is the journey. This is the sacred journey that we're on. I'd just like to close with some words to carry us on the journey. It's from a couplet by the German poet Goethe. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So we've begun. Let's sit for a few minutes. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.